0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, And he left there and went to the region of Judea, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. But therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. And in the house the disciples asked him again about the matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, writes this, The elevation of one's self-fulfillment as the ultimate good functionally reduces God's word to an optional guidebook to meet one's emotional needs you know I love you, right? Well, today's the day that we're going to jump right in here and we're just going to rip the band-aid off and not belabor the point any longer. And we're going to actually begin to deal with the issues that Jesus is addressing in this text about marriage and divorce and about sexuality. And the fact the matter is, is marriage and sexuality are wonderful things. They are both gracious gifts from a good God and they should also then point us back to God as the giver of the gift, and that should inspire in us a love for Him and inspire in us an obedience to live by His Holy Word. But the problem is, as with all other gifts that God has given us, this gift has become distorted and twisted and misunderstood by us because of the effects of sin. Our sin has taken these good gifts and caused us to misuse them and to abuse them. Our sin has taken what what was meant for our joy and for our good and has turned them into something twisted and defiled and at times even something very painful. That's what Jesus is addressing here, the distortion of God's gifts of marriage and sexuality, and that is why we have to talk about this today. When it comes to marriage, when it... right. When it comes to marriage, when it comes to sexuality, mankind as a whole has a very broken understanding of both of these things. In fact, mankind has really made, historically, a mess out of marriage. Look at the divorce rates, even amongst Christians. Look at the number of people who live together, who refuse to marry. Look at, the, look, look at what popular culture has done to marriage and sexuality and all the very deviancies that, that attach itself to that. Mankind, right, including many people who claim to be Christians, have, have made a mess of things. And because of that, there's a lot of confusion around the world about marriage, about divorce, and about sexuality itself. But, but the truth is this. God is the one who created it. He created marriage, he created sexuality. He's the one who invented it. And he and he has a purpose for those things. And it is our responsibility, it is our duty to learn that purpose. It is our responsibility to align our way of thinking to that purpose. It is our responsibility to begin to learn to live obedient to that purpose. And so from the very outset, Of our time together, I need you to understand you have a choice. And the choice is this: will you begin with you, or will you begin with God? Will you begin with how you feel, or are you going to begin with what God actually has to say? The determining factor: is it how you view this subject? Is it going to be based on your personal experience and your thoughts and your emotions? Or is it going to be what God says in His revelation in His Word? Are you going to listen to what what God, who is holy, 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 has to say about the institution that He created? Are you going to listen to your culture? That's the choice that you have this morning. Now let me be very clear. If you decide to listen to what God has to say on this subject, only as far as it lines up with your personal convictions and thoughts and emotions, then chances are you're going to misunderstand some of the things I'm going to talk about today. Or you will be offended by some of the things I might say today. Or maybe even, you might even grow to hate me because of some of the things I'm going to say today. But please understand, I love God and I love you. And and because of that, I mean, that means I'm absolutely obligated. I am obligated before a holy and righteous and just God to tell the truth. Even if it offends you, even if it upsets you. You see, the most hateful thing I could do against you and against God himself is to lie to you. Especially if the lie has eternal consequences. To lie to you is to hate you. You understand that? To lie to you, as misguided as my intentions may be, is really to hate you. But I don't hate you. I love you. And so in light of that, I will not lie to you. But rather, I'm going to as lovingly as I can, and as graciously as God will allow me, I'm going to tell you the absolute truth about what God has to say about this. So again, turn with me to Mark chapter 1, excuse me, Mark chapter 10, and we'll be reading beginning in verse 1. And it says, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Now what we, what we see here is we're at a place in the story where, where things are continuing to accelerate rapidly now. Because as we said before, Mark is a fast-moving narrative of the life and the ministry of Christ, and the entire gospel really rushes towards the cross. It's been said that that Mark is basically a passion narrative with an extended introduction. It moves very fast, and we're at a place where it's really beginning to gain momentum. Because what we know now is we're we're at a place in the story where Jesus has completed his Galilean ministry. He has done all the preaching there he is going to ever do again. He's done the miracles that he was going to do there, and now the time has moved on for him to move his way ever more towards Jerusalem. The purpose for which Christ has come into the world is now on the horizon and is beginning to be visible. And again, Jesus' fame has spread all over to the point that when he arrives in Judea, the crowds of people are already beginning to flock to him. As soon as they see him, they know who he is, and they're coming to be around him. They already know about him, and, 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 and they have heard about him, and they want to be near him. And so he takes this opportunity, as he always does, to preach to them. But then it says in verse 2, the Pharisees came up in an order to test him. You see, one of the things that we we have seen throughout the entire Gospel of Mark is that when crowds begin to gather to Jesus, the the Pharisees are very soon to follow because they begin to argue with Jesus and they're trying to test him and trip him up. They are there. They do not like the attention he's getting, and they're trying to get at the root of whether he's the Messiah or not, and, 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 and so they come to test him. The Pharisees are these religious elites, and if you remember, they have already made up their minds that, that he is a lawbreaker and a blasphemer, and as such, they are looking for a way to kill him. They're just looking for a way to justify his death. That's all they're needing now is an excuse. That's why they keep testing and prodding and asking because they're trying to trip him up. In fact, that's why they asked this question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, when he asked that question, I want you to understand, they're not asking this question because they want to know the answer to this question. That's just not the, even the point. They're asking this question for two reasons. Number one, they ask this question to see if Jesus might say something that's heretical in proving that, that he might not be the Messiah. Because the fact of the matter is the Messiah must uphold the word of God. It must, he must affirm the law. So so what, whatever Jesus answers, however he answers this question, it must be conformed to God's revelation in the law. It's kind of like when, if you remember, when the Pharisees brought to Jesus the woman who was caught in adultery. Right? As, it, it, as, it, if you remember when they brought her before them, right, they said to Jesus. He caught her in adultery, and the law says to kill her. What do you say, Jesus? Right? And they asked this question because because they knew, right, that that if if he said to not kill her, that would be proof then that he is not actually the Messiah because he's not upholding the law that was supposedly came from him. But then, if he did say to kill her then he was proving that he's not a friend of the sinner. And so they thought when they, when they brought this woman to him that he was stuck, that, that he was trapped. There was no way out for him. But what does Jesus do? He says, you who have no sin, cast the first stone. He turned it around on them, and then they all left. Well, it's the same thing here. It's the same idea here. They're trying to trap him one way or the other. The second reason why, the second reason why they asked this question is because they know, right, that they are right now in the in, in the territory of King Herod. Remember, both the Pharisees and those who were called Herodians wanted Jesus to die. Those people who supported Herod wanted him to die, right? And, and Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, had been arrested by and, and murdered by King Herod. Why? Because he dared to speak the truth about marriage and sexuality. He dared to call sin, sin. Because Herod had taken his brother's wife, who by the way was also his niece, and take, him, take her as his own. And so, so John spoke out against sin, and so he was arrested for it and killed for it. And so the Pharisees were probably thinking that if Jesus you know, says the wrong thing about marriage, maybe like John the Baptist, maybe he'll get in trouble and get killed too. That'll solve our problem. That's why they asked the question. Now what I need you to realize is this this controversy about marriage and divorce and what marriage is, this controversy that we have in our culture is not new. The, the, The controversy goes all the way back to Christ and even before. Mankind has been struggling to live obedient to God's plan for marriage and sexuality. That struggle goes all the way back almost to the beginning. And as a result... Having a God-centered view of marriage was just as dangerous then as it is now. Now, some people might say, well, wait a minute. Having a biblical view of marriage may be inconvenient, but it isn't dangerous today. And I would say if that's your opinion, you're very naive about that. Today, people lose their jobs all the time if they dare to express the biblical view of marriage publicly. Heaven forbid they do so on social media. People get fired from their jobs for expressing what the Bible itself says about marriage. Businesses are being sued and boycotted all the time because because they stand up for what God says about marriage and sexuality. Even people who work in the ministry are being targeted for their stances for biblical marriage. A pastor up north was fired by his own congregation for proclaiming the truth about marriage because the congregation got so much public backlash uh, by by, uh, activist groups. In fact, in Canada, there have been pastors, and also in the UK, that have been arrested for publicly stating what they believe to be true about marriage. Even Louis Giglio, if you know who that guy is, he's probably one of the nicest, most loving, one of the most easygoing pastors in, in all of America. I mean, for crying out loud, the worship leader in his church is Chris Tomlin. You can't get more vanilla and, and likable than that, right? Even Louis Giglio faced a public outcry because he was asked to lead the inaugural prayer at Barack Obama's second inauguration, but somebody happened to look back 10 years and found a sermon where he mentioned that, you know, that, that, that uh, marriage is between a man and a woman, and Louis Giglio affirmed the biblical definition of marriage, and there was so much pressure you know, brought against him from a 10-year-old sermon that he just decided to back out of the situation altogether. Standing for biblical marriage is very dangerous today, right? like it was before. In fact, I think the most terrifying question that a Christian can be asked publicly, especially on a recorded interview, is, do you think homosexuality is a sin? Because that question is really a setup. It is a setup. Is all that it is. Because they don't ask the question, do you think that, um, uh, you think that, that sex before marriage is a sin? They don't, they don't ask that. Do you think that that pornography is a sin? Or, Or do you think adultery? They don't ask those questions. They ask the one question that they know will create public outcry and get people in trouble. They ask this question because they know politically and financially and personally that it's dangerous to answer that question honestly and clearly. And that's why the Pharisees, they ask the question about divorce because it's a dangerous question for him to answer and to answer biblically. Now understand, this issue of marriage and divorce at that time was not settled culturally, by the way, right? There was a wide array of opinions at the time on divorce, and, and in fact, the issue of divorce wasn't even argued. Like, the, the, the issue of whether or not you can get a divorce wasn't argued. What, what was argued was what was, what was the, the grounds for divorce. Can a person, what were the grounds for divorce, and then what were the grounds for somebody to get remarried? That was the issue that people were really arguing about. In fact, Matthew records the Pharisees asking the question this way, is it lawful for, uh, to divorce one's wife for any cause? You see, the assumption was that divorce was lawful. The only question then was, what was the right reason to get a divorce? And, and at the time, there were essentially two dominant views. There were lots of views, but there were two, one, two dominant views. One was very strict and said that divorce was only for extreme cases, and on the other one, it was a very liberal, uh, and they believed that you could divorce your wife for something as simple as burning your supper. Right? You had that wide range of views there, and the Pharisees were asking Jesus to basically weigh in on that particular controversy. By the way, you cannot divorce your wife for burning your supper, okay? Just, just so you know, all right. <laughs> but, notice, but notice that Jesus doesn't answer the question right away. Instead, he turns it on them and asks them a question of his own. And, and if we read that in verse 3, he says, he answered them, what did Moses command you? Jesus knew that ultimately they're going to have to ground their, their, their rationale in the law of Moses. And so he asked them, what did Moses say? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And I want you to realize what's happening here. Notice how they responded. Notice the words that they're using. They did not say that Moses commanded, right? that, that Moses gave consent to, that Moses was like all on board with. It says that Moses allowed... He allowed it. And this is important because even they recognized that divorce wasn't God's design and and that that God wasn't, wasn't going to expressly condone divorce at all. But rather, divorce was allowed in order to resolve certain issues. Jesus leverages this point and says this. He says, because of your hardness of heart, He wrote you this commandment. Jesus very quickly now has turned the tables on them. And he made it clear that the issue of divorce is a matter of having a hard heart. People get divorced and desire to be divorced most of the time. I'm not going to say all the time. Most of the time, not because they have a good reason, but because their hearts are hard. And what are their hearts hard to? They're hard to God and His Word is what they're hard to. And I want you to know that it's interesting that the root problem of divorce is the same root problem of unbelief. It's a hard heart towards God and His Word. Also, it's interesting that both divorce and unbelief result in destruction and are very painful. The root problem Jesus is saying about divorce is the hardness of a person's heart. And because people's hearts are hard, they want to abandon their commitments and pursue other relationships... And they will do destructive things to their spouses and their families in order to get out of a marriage. Even people who aren't downright like abusive will use psychological and emotional abuse to accomplish their aim. I think one of the most frustrating things that I've seen in couples is a tendency of somebody who wants to leave to, to make life miserable for the other one so that the other one will say, get out. And then, then the other person feels justified, well, they, call, they told me to leave. People, because of their hardness of heart, will create hostile situations in their homes so they can get what they want, which is a divorce. People's hearts are hard, and because of that, Moses allowed for the divorce. And the primary reason, I want you to hear me, the primary reason he allowed for divorce was to protect the vulnerable people in that marriage. Now, you might be thinking, why would he allow divorce, and how does divorce protect anyone? Well, those are great questions, and those are the questions that we're going to actually address next week. Because next week, we're going to dive in and we're going to look at this issue of divorce and whether or not the Bible permits it and and what are the circumstances that the Bible allows for, for that to take place. This week, I think, before we ask that question about divorce, we need to really ask, I think, the foundational question of marriage. We need to really be clear on what marriage really is. Before we can understand what divorce is and its place in the world, we need to understand what marriage is, what marriage is for, and we also need to understand what marriage is not. So the first thing that we need to do here is get clear about our biblical view of marriage. In fact, that's what Jesus does here, by the way. Before he answers the question about divorce... Before he addresses their question, he goes right back to the beginning, and he defines for them what marriage is. And so I want to take my definition right out of what Jesus says here. He says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. Jesus begins his answer about divorce by appealing to Genesis chapter 2 and defining for them what marriage is. Right? And by extension, he's defining what marriage is not. So let me define for you, in the, best, in the clearest terms that I possibly can, what biblical marriage is, and then we're going to look at the Scriptures and what it says about that. So here's the definition. Okay? Marriage is a lifelong union between a man and a woman. Those are your fill-ins ordained by God from creation. And the purpose of that union is procreation, sanctification, and illustration. I'm going to say all that again. According to the Scriptures, marriage is a lifelong union between a man and a woman, ordained by God from creation. And the purpose of this union is procreation, sanctification, and illustration. One more time. It's a big, long definition. I realize that. There's a lot here. Marriage is a lifelong union between a man and a woman ordained by God from creation. And the purpose of this union is procreation, sanctification, and illustration. So that's the definition that I'd like to work with today. There's a lot here, so we're going to unpack it. Uh, I apologize, I might move a little bit fast, but I've got a lot of ground to cover. Notice that Jesus says, Well, first of all, marriage, I want you to see, is a union. It is the uniting of two people into one identity. Marriage is the uniting of two people into one identity. I want you to notice what Jesus says. And what Jesus says here is what, what it says in Genesis. Okay, And the two have become one flesh. So they're no longer one, excuse me, no longer two, but one flesh. This right here is one of the blessed mysteries of God. Two people have come together and become inseparable and united as a person under God. The Expositors Bible Commentary puts it this way. The Semitic expression, one flesh, means united together like one person and it emphasizes the permanence of the bond. To break this bond is like ripping a single person into two. That right there is... By the way, why divorce is painful and destructive. It is the ripping apart of something that was never meant to be ripped apart. Marriage is a supernatural union. A supernatural union between a husband and a wife. It is the taking of two identities and making them one. In in marriage, there is no longer I and me. It is us and we. And because this union then is foundational to the identity of both people in the marriage. This means the marriage relationship is greater than and transcends all other human relationships. If you are married, the most important human relationship you have besides your relationship with God is your spouse. I'm going to say that again. If you are married, the most important relationship you have in your life besides your relationship with God is your spouse. That means... Your, your, your spouse is more important than your mom and dad. In fact, Jesus makes that point. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Again, the, the, the Expositor's Bible Commentary says this, since the marriage is a lifelong union between a man and a woman, it, its claims to take precedent over ties to father and mother. Your spouse is to be your primary relationship over all other relationships, including your parents, including your childhood best friend that you've known forever, including your siblings, including your, your cousins that, you, that are like best friends, even including your crazy cousins that you just can't help but to love, including your grandma, including, including your buddies that you hang out with, including even your own children and your own grandchildren. Your spouse is to be the greatest and most important human relationship that you have. Period. That is how God designed for it to be. The union symbolizes the great importance of this relationship. The husband and wife come together as two individuals being united as one single identity. This union is expressed both spiritually but also it's expressed physically. That is why this union then is by definition, by definition, is heterosexual. Look at what Jesus says here. God made them male and female. And notice, I want you to see the word that he uses next, okay? This is so important. He uses the word therefore. Anytime you see the word therefore, you should ask the question, what is that word therefore? Therefore. You see, the word therefore is important because it's a connecting word. It connects what Jesus is about to say with what he just said, meaning that you cannot interpret the intent of the following sentence without understanding the sentence that precedes it. They're inextricably linked together. This word therefore also is composed of two Greek words up here. "heneka," which means reason. And how toss, which means for this. And when you put those words together, what you get in English is, is roughly this for this reason, is what he's saying. Therefore, or for this reason. So, what Jesus is literally saying here is this for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Well, what reason is that? Right. For what reason does a man leave his father and mother and take a wife? Well, the reason is because from the beginning, God had created them male and female. You see, God created them male and female for a reason, for a purpose. He made them and designed them for this purpose. The purpose is to be married, to be united in one identity. Right? That's the plan. He made them biologically, spiritually, and emotionally be connected to one another. He said, so they're no longer two but one flesh. The truth of marriage is grounded, is grounded in their gender. God created them as opposite but complementary ideas, complementary identities, coming together. To make one unified identity. Not mirror images, but opposites. Which means marriage by God's design, plan, will, and purpose from the beginning has been, by definition, heterosexual. Marriage by definition is between a man and a woman. A husband and a wife. Because it is rooted in how God himself has created mankind. How God, how, how he created them. Well, how did he create them? It says right there, he created a male and female. Now, this, tra- this truth right here, if there's a truth that's going to get people to like send me a hate mail over this message, it's going to be this one. Th- this truth right here is the truth that the world violently pushes back against. This is the truth that gets people and businesses boycotted. This is the truth, again, that will get me hate mail and hate email. This is a truth that gets Christians labeled as hateful and bigoted and narrow-minded and even fascists. Because this is a truth that the world absolutely detests and hates. And the reason for that simply is this. The world has decided to submit to its feelings, emotions, desires, and cultural pressure rather than the Word of God. It's decided to submit to its heart. But you remember the Bible says about our hearts that it's wicked and deceitful. Anything outside of that definition It's not a marriage. And the Word of God is explicit about this. If you come to the Word of God, reading for what it says, you will see marriage is a lifelong union of a biological man and a biological woman. And again, anything outside of that, by definition, is not marriage. Now, some people will push back and say, what about same-sex marriage? And I would say, as lovingly and as graciously as I possibly can, there is no such thing. It's not real. Just look at the Word of God. Look at what God says about marriage. And then they'll say, well, wait a minute. The law of the land says that there is such thing as as, as same-sex marriage. And I say, that's fine, what the the law of the land says. Just because the government sanctions something doesn't make it true or right. Just because the government recognizes the relationship that's called same-sex marriage doesn't mean that God will recognize that or that we should. The government will say, you know, no, no no matter what people say, Right? What, what people, excuse me, now some people will say um, the government actually itself is increasingly recognizing, let me show you an example of where the government gets something wrong, painfully wrong. The government is increasingly recognizing more and more and more and more genders. The problem is that God doesn't, and, and, and neither does science, by the way. There's only two. There's male and there's female. Now, some people will say, what about those who struggle with their identity? And I would say, with all sincerity and compassion, my heart breaks for them. My heart breaks for people who struggle you know, with the brokenness in, in their lives. My heart breaks for the confusion they must feel. They mu- then my heart breaks for the pain that they must experience. My heart breaks for, for what they have perceived to be rejection. And my hope would be that they would turn to Christ in repentance and faith, and that Christ would heal them and Christ would give them peace, and then Christ then would, would then progressively through the Holy Spirit make them into the image of, of Himself, helping them to go to, to get past these things. That's what my hope would be. Some will also say, What about those who are born with, with both sex organs or or this genetic trait or that genetic trait? And the reality is that's such a minuscule, minute percentage of the population that it's not even really relevant to the issue, and those people tend to present one way or the other, and for those who don't, the fact of the matter is, 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 I believe that with love and great care, that God's plan for them in their life can be revealed to them. So just because the government says something is true doesn't make it true. Just because the government condones something doesn't make it right. There's a point in our history that the government condones slavery there was a point in history that it condoned the subjugation of women. There was a point in our history that it condoned child labor. That's why we have child labor laws. There was a point that it, it condoned racism. And even more, even worse than that, if you're 49 years old or younger, one third of your generation has been exterminated. One full third of your generation has been exterminated because the government has allowed and condoned it. Since 1972, 60 million children have been murdered. Nearly twice the population of California. Like, that's a number that you just have to come to terms with. 60 million, a third of the generation, my generation and younger. And people and governments rationalize it, calling it healthcare, citing economic reasons and all kinds of other things. But it doesn't make it right. God still hates The murder of children, God still hates child sacrifice. And it's the same thing with adultery, did you know there's no law really anymore against adultery? You can't go to jail for it anymore, and there's no law against consuming pornography. But just because the government condones their sanctions behaviors doesn't make them right, so we can't appeal to the government for what is true and right. Jesus makes it clear that marriage is between a man and a woman and therefore is by definition it's heterosexual. Now, this union is also meant to be enduring. It's meant to be a lifelong union. Again, what is implied in the Jewish idea of one flesh is, is an indivisible whole. Its purpose is supposed to be permanent. Notice Jesus says this, what therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. Marriage, the marriage union this becoming one flesh is not simply a physical act of consummation, but a supernatural act of infusing Two separate identities into one. It is meant by God to endure a lifetime. This union is also ordained by God Himself. God created it. God designed it. He purposed it and He blessed it. Marriage, hear me, is a blessing from God. It is a good gift from a gracious God. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22 says this, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. I mean, there's lots of verses about marriage, but if, if that was the only one, I think that's enough to, to, to make the point. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Marriage is a wonderful blessing from God that He has given us. A union between a husband and wife is a beautiful gift that God has ordained. And, and understand, because God ordained it, he gets to define what it is and what it isn't. And so here's the thing. If you push back against the definition of marriage, then you're not pushing it back against me. You're pushing it back against God himself. I didn't create marriage. My opinion, as we talked about last week very clearly, doesn't matter. right? He's the one who created it. He's the one who gives it its purpose. In fact, God has given marriage three essential purposes. Those are procreation, sanctification, and illustration And I'll quickly, uh, in the time that we have left, unpack those here. I want to begin, first of all, with procreation. Procreation is the purpose that's rooted in the creation and cultural mandate that God has given to mankind at the beginning. When God created man, do you remember what He said to them? What He said, what He commanded them? Well, let me remind you. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, it says this, And God said, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the, every living thing that moves on the earth. Notice the mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. See, the mandate is to fill the earth with image bearers of God and that they would then have dominion over it. One of the purposes of marriage is for us to fill the creation mandates through procreation, the raising up of future generations of people who love God, who go about fulfilling this creation mandate. And this is done. How? Through procreation. Because how else are you supposed to multiply? They haven't figured out cloning yet to that degree. There is no other way. It must be done through procreation, and that by the way is why marriage requires both genders because that's, because, there's, because that's the only way, historically speaking, that a married couple can procreate. Now some will say, wait a minute, because of science and, and artificial insemination, you don't, it doesn't require both genders in a marriage. Well, that's actually a lie. You still have to have both genders involved in procreation, one way or the other. You still need a man, you still need a woman. They might not be married, they might not even be in the same room, they might not even have to make contact, right? But you cannot have a child without a man and a woman, and each child that ever is born is the product of one man and one woman. It's immutable. Science is still science. And not to mention God, it is God's design for children to be raised in a home with a mother and a father, and the scientific data that supports the benefits of that are just indisputable. Children who are raised in a home without a father or a mother suffer more emotional health issues than all other children and are more likely to turn to drugs and alcohol, are more likely to go to jail, are more, than, more likely to fall into sexual sin. Girls are more likely to get pregnant out of wedlock, and the boys are more likely to be abusive and, and create more pregnancies. Statistics bear it out. God's design is what's best for children, and it's what's best for the world. What about those couples who who can't have children or or, or didn't have children? Does that mean that they're outside of God's will? Not even close, not at all. Procreation is one of the purposes of marriage, right? It's not the only one. The second purpose is sanctification. Because marriage is the proper and only context for our God-given desire for sex and intimacy. The truth is that is this. God created us male and female. He made us. He created us for physical union. And that physical union is designed to bring us great joy and happiness. And, he, and we were created to desire that union. It is a gift from God. The same way that food satisfies your natural hunger and brings you joy, and by the way, lots of us are really joyful about food, The same way that water satisfies your natural thirst and brings you joy, the same way that sleep satisfies your body's natural need for rest, how that brings you joy, and some of us really enjoy sleep more than others, right? The same way sex satisfies that God-given desire to be united with our spouse. Our desire for intimacy and sex is a good thing. It is a gift from God, and it's meant to bring joy to our relationship with our spouse. And it was meant to give us a deeper connection with them that was meant then to bring also forth children. It is God's design, and, and, and the emotion that, is, that, 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 that this right union elicits in us points us toward a relationship with God. As John Piper says, God created us in His image, male and female, with personhood and sexual passion so that when He comes to us in the world, there would be these powerful words and images to describe the promises of the pleasures of, of our covenant relationship with Him through Christ. And so our appetites and our desires are good, but they, like all of our other appetites, have been affected by the fall and distorted by our sin. The same way that hunger in, our hunger um, has been distort, distort, distorted to lead us to gluttony, and the way that our desire to be accepted can lead us into uh, narcissism, and the way that our desire to be loved creates codependency, and the way that our desire for fun can lead us to drunkenness and even addiction, our God-given sexual desire has also been corrupted. And these corruptions really have no end. Mankind's sexual desire leads to all manner of destructive behaviors, including adultery, fornication, pornography, Prostitution, homosexuality, pedophilia, and even things that we can't even like mention here. Sin has distorted our desires to something vile and putrid. But God has given us marriage to sanctify us, to purify us. Because God, because marriage between a man and a woman is the only and proper place for those desires to be fulfilled. We are to fulfill our desires through. We're not, excuse me, we're not to fulfill our desires through consuming of pornography or through premarital sex or adultery. We are commanded by God to refrain from all other sexual activity outside of marriage except for the union between a man and a woman. Because all other expressions of sex from all other expressions are by their nature against God's design and will and purpose and by definition, is sinful. And I want you to hear me, okay? This is the point I think we have to all come to. This is the point that we just have to accept. As Christians, we have to stand firm on all sexual expressions outside of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman are called by the Bible, pornaya or sexual sin. And we are called by the Word of God to flee from it. Not dabble in it, not experiment with it, not try to stay in the situation and try to resist it. No, Paul says to flee, to run from it. He says that sexual sin is the only sin that you commit against your own body, by the way. Marriage is the proper context for a God-given desire for intimacy and sex. and, and, And through that, it sanctifies both husband and wife. So the purpose of marriage is procreation and sanctification, but it's also for illustration, which I think is probably the most important Purpose. Marriage is a very real-world picture of a greater reality, which is our hope. The hope that Christ will come back for us the way a husband is supposed to come back for his bride. We read in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5, For your Maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. Marriage is a tangible illustration of the joy and the hope of our relationship with God. In fact, I want you to notice how Paul uses that illustration to instruct husbands and wives in how they are to treat one another. In Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, Paul says this, "'Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior.'" Now the church submits to Christ... So also, wives submit to everything, submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy. the church. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. Marriage is a clear, clear, clear illustration of the greatest possible relationship that we were designed for, which is our relationship with Christ. And even Jesus uses marriage language to communicate this. John chapter 14, one of the most hope filled sections of the Bible. He says this in verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. I mean, how many times have you leaned on that promise? Let not your hearts be, be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Here's the point that you need to pay attention to. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you, I will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. And then he says, and you know the way to where we're going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, this passage of Scripture is one that's given people great hope over the years. It is the Scripture that we point to that says that Jesus is the only way. It is, it is a Scripture that I have leaned on in my own personal life multiple times. It's been cited by Christians for millennia. Why? Because Christ has promised that he's, prepared, he's already prepared a place for us, and that one day He's coming back for us. That's the promise. That is our hope. That is what we cling to. Right? Now, as important as that is, understand, if you were Jewish at the time, you would recognize this metaphor that he's using here. It's a wedding metaphor because a Jewish man, once he was, had a, a woman betrothed to him, it was his responsibility to go to his father's property, his father's house, right, and to build or prepare a house for her, to prepare a place for her to come to, to be with him. And once those preparations were done, he would marry her and then bring her home to be with him the rest of his life. What Jesus is saying, just as a faithful husband will put things in order and come back for his beloved and take care of her, Christ likewise will do the same for his church. That's the promise. The institution of marriage points us to the promise of hope, of of the consummation of our redemption. That one day... Right? We will not only be saved from the penalty of sin, and not only will we be saved from the power of sin, but we will finally, finally be saved from the presence of sin and live in eternity with Christ where there will be everlasting joy, where there is no more tears or pain or sorrow or brokenness or depression or confusion. That's our hope. We, the bride, look forward to the time we'll be at home with our beloved Christ. And that hope is why, by the way, Christ came. Jesus came into the world because our sin made that union with him impossible. That's the point. Whatever union we might have ever desired to have with God was impossible because of our sin. And so God himself came into the world. He took on a human nature and lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, fulfilling the law that we couldn't fulfill, and then turned around and willingly gave himself up on the cross to redeem his bride. And on that cross, he took upon himself our sin, and in return, he gives us his righteousness, so now we can actually have a relationship with God again. And he died on that cross, but more importantly, he rose again three days later, proving that our sins have been paid for, and that our hope that he will come back for us is actually real. And then all we need to do is repent and believe that promise. All we need to do is turn away from our old life and turn to Christ in faith, and and we then are saved. That is our hope. We will be saved, and our hope of being with Christ forever is our permanent hope. Because the truth is this, the bridegroom is faithful and true. He will fulfill His promise to come back for us. So marriage, marriage is the lifelong union between a man and a woman, ordained by God from creation. And the purpose of that union is procreation, sanctification, and illustration. And as such, then, it is a sacred institution that must be respected and protected by all those truly follow Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. Father, may the words of my mouth may the words of my mouth, Lord, be received in the loving way that I intend. I am certainly passionate because I'm passionate about your truth. I'm passionate because I want to see people saved. I'm passionate, Lord, because I don't want for people to step off in eternity without knowing you. But in that, Lord, let my passion be construed as loving, Lord. That, Father, your truth is the truth, and we must proclaim it, but do so lovingly, Lord. And, Father, let us also not just focus on a single issue, Because there are lots of sinful issues, Lord, that we battle with. Conform our hearts in all of those things, in all of our views of marriage, Lord. Help us, Lord God, to conform our thinking to your word and your truth. And Father, we know that this is not something that we're going to choose to do on our own. It has to be from you. The Father, the desires that, that lead us astray, the, the passions that draw us away, the things that get us into trouble, Lord God, those are things that you must work in us to, to repair. Lord, we will absolutely do the things that we're called to do by your grace-driven effort, but ultimately, Lord, the only way we're changing is for you to do it, Lord. Because that's what the gospel is, is I can't do it. We can't do it. You had to do it all for us, Lord. So Father, I just pray that you would do that. You would conform all of our minds and hearts to your word and that we would not be ashamed of the gospel and we would not be ashamed of the truth and that we would, Lord, have the lovingest disposition, Lord, but we would still tell people the truth and that we would be gracious and loving and we would continue to point them to Jesus and that we would love them even in spite of the fact that sometimes they won't receive what we have to say. Even if they push back, we would still love them and love them and love them and love them, Lord God. Help us to do that, Father, because that's our task, to sow the seed, love the people, and pray that you change their heart and never, ever, ever give up on them. So, Father, I pray that you would use this message and this word, Lord God, to pour into the lives of your creation and your people, Lord, and help me, Lord God, to not be misunderstood, but for your word to... To reign supreme. And if anything I said, Lord, is an error, Father, by your Holy Spirit, you would correct that. I pray, Father, your blessing over this congregation, that you would help us to be conformed more and more into your image. And I pray, Father God, that we would be people who would go out of here sharing the hope of Christ with our world. We love you and give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.